You're listening to the Jim Bradford Podcast, conversations on faith, life, and leadership. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Last week, we took a look at the book of 1 Samuel, and we were introduced to Saul and David. In this week's episode, we wrap up the books of Samuel with a discussion on 2 Samuel. We discuss the passing of the throne from Saul to David and the complicated life David lived, a life of faithfulness, of really devastating sin, but also confession. Pastor Jim offers both encouragement and warning from David's life, and together we discuss how the book can contribute to our own task of serving in leadership and faithfulness to God. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. As always, thanks for listening. Pastor Jim, it's an mm-hmm. honor to be able to sit down together again and continue our conversations. We've been working our way through books of the Bible, and uh, in the middle of uh, what originally was probably one one scroll, First and Second Samuel, that because of length and passing down through history has been divided into First Samuel, Second Samuel. We find ourselves in the middle of that story, taking up Second Samuel today. Yeah, it's really great to sit with you again, and we're having uh, we're having fun just trying to take one whole book per half-hour episode, and uh, thanks for walking us through all of this. Yeah, hopefully what listeners are getting is a little bit of context, a little bit of background, uh, a little bit of theme, kind of what the core ideas of the book are, and then a little of you and I just turning to some of our favorite sections, and uh, certainly all of these books have many of those. We just are scratching the surface for some of these, certainly the case with First and Second Samuel. But uh, catch us up with Second Samuel. We're picking up to a l- some degree in the middle of this story. But uh, what's the context of Second Samuel? Where do we find ourselves in the, the story of Israel and God's people? Second Samuel really builds on something that happened back in First Samuel chapter 16. Uh, King Saul's paranoia and insecurities have gotten the best of him. God's done with him as the first king of Israel. Samuel doesn't want to let go of Saul, but in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, God has has Samuel get over it and go on to anoint the next king, who will turn out to be one of Jesse's sons. Uh, Jesse uh, had uh, a number of sons, one of which was David, who they didn't even bring in because they didn't think he'd be the guy. There's a lot that preaches there, uh, but he's out in the shepherd fields. And of course, David will later be promised a son who will be the Messiah. So when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, where David lived, um, it's not surprising the angels spoke to the shepherds. First of all, that's where David came from. And he's anointed with oil in chapter 16. As Samuel anoints with oil, it says the power of God was upon him. The spirit of God was upon him from that day on. So there was something tangibly imparted by the Spirit of God onto David to be, you know, who would become one of the great, great, really great or greatest of the kings of Israel. So the Spirit of God comes on him. Um, And the more favor starts coming onto David's life, the more jealous Saul is. So the last part of 1 Samuel is is Saul trying to get rid of David. And, And there's a there's probably a number of years that pass here, a lot of character. So I like to think First Samuel is David's ordination, but Second Samuel will be his coronation. Uh, 
in the last chapter of First Samuel, Saul dies in battle, as does his David's best friend, Jonathan. And so Second Samuel opens with David finding out the details of Saul's death and Jonathan's death in this battle, and um, and then grieving. There's quite a poetic section right at the beginning of Second Samuel's David grieves uh, the loss. Interesting enough, of both Saul and Jonathan. He kind of, he talks about Jonathan as having a kind of relationship with him that he doesn't with Saul. But even though he's been hunted down by Saul for so long, he still truly seems to grieve Saul's death. And uh, he realizes this is going to be the moment. And there's going to be Saul's loyal factions for a while, and, and then people want to come behind David. And so the next couple, three chapters, uh, up through chapter five, you know, you just got a lot of, you kind of have a civil war and people trying to figure out um, do we put our loyalties behind David or not? And then in chapter five, uh, David becomes the king over all of Israel. And uh, and towards the end of chapter five, he conquers Jerusalem and sets up his headquarters there. So you see all these pieces fit, start falling into place in the first part of Second Samuel. Yeah, great, um, great stories of his coming to power, Amazing. that final achievement, so long yeah. coming, so many obstacles. He's been chased by Saul. He's been plagued by enemies and battles. It's conflict and civil war at the beginning, but that coronation scene of him finally coming to power is yeah. so so powerful. I don't talk to many leaders that have had like this straight line linear, like everything went to plan. I went to, if they're a pastor, I went to a Bible school, got a great position, Everything just was up, up, up from there. You know, these days I more talk to leaders who have a lot of angst, like what's God doing? Um, I feel destiny in my heart. I feel he's made promise to me, but I'm stuck right now in my life. Uh, You know, this gives us a lot of reassurance that uh, things aren't linear. And uh, God's timing is so sovereign. I don't understand it, but you, you can't, you can't put your calendar book on top of God's destiny for your life. So I, I think, you know, that, that's more the story I hear from a lot of leaders who have broken through and kind of blossomed in terms of their calling and destiny. There's always the breaking, the stripping, the being hunted down, the the testing of your character. Uh, Donald G., the great leader of the Pentecostal movement in Great Britain, he's, he used to say, you know, leaders are always prepared in secret. And it's it, what happens in the secret places of your life and those times of obs- obscurity in your life. They do prepare you then for those moments when you're given broader favor. We talked in last week's episode about Saul really cracking under the pressure of being king and the external yeah. image of it. In many ways, First Samuel is sort of the unraveling of Saul. Um, perhaps he's never better than he was at the beginning. You know, and From there, it all seems to really deteriorate. Uh, most people, when they think of David's story, think of David and Goliath, perhaps David becoming king, anointed by Saul, uh, and then perhaps David and Bathsheba's story, which happens here in Second Samuel. But uh, there's a lot more material than just that. What do you make of the life of David as king once you finally reach this point of him becoming king all the way through to the beginning of First Kings where we read about his being advanced in age and passing on the rule? You learn a lot about David's spirituality 
uh, when you read the Psalms. And so uh, he, he writes Psalms like Psalm 54 and Psalm 57 and Psalm 59 while he's being chased by, by Saul. Uh, and when you go to those Psalms, usually in the, you know, in the little intro to the Psalms, it can say, this is why this was written when David was hiding in the cave and Saul was chasing him. Uh, and they're just fascinating Psalms. This would be more his earlier, um, you know, really tested kinds of times in his life. He knows he's already been anointed to be the next King, but he's not on the throne yet. And that in between time can be terrible. So, so, uh, you know, I learned from David, you know, how to navigate those in-between times between when you you feel like God's called you to something, but the doors aren't open and the opposite seems to be happening in your life. That's, that's, that's David there. But when you get into second Samuel, uh, you see the good and the bad, you see some really serious failure. Actually, second Samuel starts well, because this spirituality you see indicated in the Psalms, not only the Psalms he writes when he's running from Saul, but after Saul's dead, now that he's king, um, you see he's always in conflict with enemies ongoingly, and it gets worse after his own personal failures. But he has this passion for the presence of God. And so you've got this whole scenario after he conquers Jerusalem, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God, representing the covenant that God has made with his people. He wants to bring it in and to bring it into the uh, um, into what will be a temple that he also wants to rebuild. So his two passions become the presence of God and the temple of God to house the presence of God and to sanctuary it at the center of God's people in the city of, uh, of David, the city of David, which was Jerusalem. And so um, this becomes really powerful narrative of his 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 spiritual passion it's like it's like he becomes king and his preoccupation is is not uh how can i gain more land how can i conquer how can i kill more philistines but it's how can i recover the presence of god in the midst of this people that i'm now ruling and how can i build god a house fitting for him that a house that God would put the glory of his own name in the earth upon. So this primitive passion for the glory of God and the presence of God uh, become the overriding themes. It's kind of downhill from there for David, the rest of the book, but, but boy, this is, this is like the pinnacle for David. I've always thought it's interesting that uh, to your point about the Psalms, you get this really clearly in the Psalms, but even in second Samuel, you don't get a whitewashed picture of David. You don't get a right. a sort of well. If you think about some of the ancient scrolls they found, or stones that'll depict the Egyptian kings, or the even later on the Assyrian kings, Babylonian kings, it's always their victories, their conquests. Even sometimes when we know archaeologically, they're probably you know they totally vanquished this kingdom. Well, probably not entirely. It's always sort of the great exploits, their great achievements, exaggerated to some degree. But yet you read Second Samuel, and you, that's not the kind of story that's recorded about him. There are victories, plenty of them. But you also get his failures. You get in the Psalms his own confessions. I mean, one of the things that's so striking to me about Second Samuel to this conversation we had last time about integrity is at the end of David's life, he doesn't 
burn the royal records that make him look bad. He doesn't seem overly concerned about refining his image so that he'll be remembered in sort of a perfect light, you know, the good king. Uh, he gives you all of it. He at yeah. the very end, One of my favorite scenes from 2 Samuel is a, a little scene where he's fleeing Jerusalem. His son Absalom has rebelled against him. And he's just got a few bodyguards as they're sort of really without much preparation, just fleeing out towards the wilderness. And uh, there's a, a man, Shammai, who's standing over the hill. And as David is fleeing, he begins to curse David. You know, this is your own fault. The blood, your own family's blood is on your hands. And one of David's bodyguards says, hey, do you want me to go deal with this guy? And David says to him, it's in Second uh, Samuel 16, leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's such a yeah. an interesting image of David uh, and true to who he is in the end. He does not always get it right, mm -hmm. but he's always willing to acknowledge what he got wrong and to own that. And yeah. I think that's a pretty remarkable picture of integrity. Yeah, it really is. In fact, in one of those moments, I think that happens a couple of times, and one of them, David said, who knows, I probably deserve this anyway. You know, that's... that's uh, that's a humble place to be uh, with real integrity. He'll tell later his son Solomon in First Kings how to deal with some of those guys, but he, he kept his hands off them, and he was willing to say, I've really messed up in some areas of my life, and and uh, but may God give me blessing in the end somehow. So let him curse me. I probably have it coming. Um, we, I, I think... You know, that that becomes a part of a decline in his life after his sin with Bathsheba. He should have been going out to battle again that spring, with, but he stayed home for some reason. Let other people do the fighting, had too much idle time in his hands, et cetera, and gets involved in an affair with Bathsheba, then kills her husband. And uh, <clears throat> everything, all, all the flaws in his parenting too, like his personal life, but also his parenting become really apparent in the second half of second Samuel. Yeah. There is a sort of literary technique where his children seem to kind of carry out versions of his own failures. Right. You see exactly. his sins come back in the yeah. lives of his children in a really tragic way. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he, he's a little, he's this great warrior out on the battlefield, but he's kind of passive with his kids too. And he, he he doesn't like Absalom. He doesn't put boundaries around him. He and as Absalom just literally, I mean, when your own son just tries to upset your kingdom and revolt against you, win everybody's hearts to himself against David, he sits out in the gate and said, "Yeah, that king probably doesn't care about you. Aren't you glad you have me? Because uh, you know, if you're going to rely on him, he's not going to care about what you're going through." But. Uh, I'm the guy who's available. I'm your man. And and it, it's just all very subversive. It's very evil. But all, all of all of the consequences kind of are lived out through his kids. And, uh, and um, David does repent of his sin with Bathsheba. That's where we get Psalm 51. That famous little line that ought to convict every one of us from Nathan the prophet looks David in the face and says, you're the one, you're the one who's done this. And um, David does repent, maybe partly why he is called a God, man after God's own heart. But um, there's just this, uh, there's just this kind of 
rising up up till you get to the sin with Bathsheba. It, it, you said these wonderful things and incredible messianic promise given to David. That's in chapter seven, where David is starting to prepare to, to build the temple. And Nathan, that same Nathan, the prophet, who will have to confront him with his sin later, comes and says, you know what? It won't be to you to build the temple. You can do the blueprints. You can amass the materials, which he does. But um, it'll be your son who will build the temple. I'll turn out to be Solomon. But you, 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 you know, because it was in your heart to do is good. You've shed too much blood. You're going to have to have, I want someone else's hands building this temple. But, but he said, here's what I am going to do for you. I'm going to give you a legacy. I'm going to give you somebody. And this is Second chapter, Samuel chapter 7, which becomes a hugely pivotal chapter in the whole flow of salvation history. He said to David, I'm going to give you somebody to sit on your throne, a descendant to sit on your throne, whose rule will never end. And of course, that was the prophecy of the Messiah, that the Messiah would be a son of David. The Messiah would come in the Davidic line, uh, where Mary and Joseph found themselves, actually. So um, th- this this promise to David, it's like a pinnacle moment. You can't build the temple, but I'm going to do something even better. I'm going to give you a king whose rule will be supreme and everlasting. And... Uh, and that's pretty great. Then he messes up. I'm curious, uh, having preached through, I'm sure, Second Samuel, or at least the David stories in the past, um, my experience has been, I preached through First and Second Samuel, and I felt like I had two kind of responses from people on the David material. There would be some who would come to me sort of quietly or privately after service, and there's something about David's life that deeply resonates with him, his failures, but the fact in spite of those failures, he can sort of still be in relationship with God. He can find this place uh, where he's still a man after God's own heart in spite of those those massive shortcomings. Right. But I also had people I know who who really struggle with the fact that David can commit such horrific sins and yet still be this figure that becomes one of the ancient forefathers of Christ himself, that he would be in such a prized place in our sort of biblical pantheon of heroes, that David would hold that seat, even though so much goes wrong in his life by his own decisions. Um, How do you walk people through the stories of David? How do we, you know, it is common to read them as only a highlight reel of the great things with an occasional warning. He is a remarkably complicated character. How is it you read him and how do you bring that to a congregation in an honest way that doesn't just gloss over those? You're absolutely right, Chase. Uh, You you can't read or preach him one-dimensionally. I think to be fair to to all of what he is, it's both and. And then you read the Psalms and there's a third thing. Uh, I mean, even at his best, like he talks about his best friends betraying him and things, even at his best, possibly before the sin with Bathsheba, uh, he's still got people, you know, definitely in the beginning of Second Samuel, he's still got people who are loyal to Saul and don't want him to be king. And And I read the Psalms and sometimes I go, this poor guy. I mean, he's always hurting. He's always got people who are trying to betray him or undermine him or or he's always got Philistines that are trying to attack him. You know, I mean, he's just, he, he deals with, it seems to me, very high levels of anxiety in his life. And you're vulnerable when you're a king. Everybody's trying to knock you off. And David, 
even though he's got the blessing of God on him in the early part of his reign, especially he, and he's promised the Messiah will be his descendant. He's promised that his son can build the temple, but it's, it's very, it's very complex just because of the high levels of anxiety that David lives with. Some of it, no fault of his own. So you've got that, you've got his failures and yet you've got, his incredible heart for the Lord. He kills Goliath. He, he, he tries to do good for his, his nation and his people. He, uh, he can write things like the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And he, it's just amazing. He's this amazingly complex person. So, so I, you know, when I deal with David, I, I find myself having to put all three is wrong, all his anxieties and all the good into one package and um, I, I think if you're preaching the life of David, you just got to take it as it comes. That's pretty simple, but you got to take it as it comes. Don't edit him too aggressively unless you're just doing a standalone topical message on courage. Then maybe you want to talk about David and Goliath or something. But, but you know, if you're going to go through his life, you just got to take the pieces as they come. And the, the overall narrative is... Sin has consequences, but God's merciful. And and if you can, if if you can keep working redemptive themes into this, and forcing people to have to have to face the offensiveness of God's redemptive mercy, I mean, God would actually have mercy on a guy who would do something like that. It means God could have mercy on me too. And and there's a, almost an offensiveness to the mercy of God. Um, I've talked to people who are offended even at the idea of forgiveness. You mean after what they did? And yet here you see God, uh, after what David did, um, there's still, there's consequences, but there's also mercy and blessing. And uh, and he, he ends life with his family kind of having fallen apart and another son rebelling against him when he's on his deathbed. But, but, but he, he ends with a heart for God. And so, um, you know, you just can't do this one dimensionally. He's got to take the pieces as they come, but put them in the context of the bigger story that we all need. God is redemptive. Even when we don't think we deserve it. I tend to talk about how the, Biblical characters don't work well as heroes if you imagine a hero is something to idolize That's and true. become. Yeah. And part of the realization I had when, you know, I have a, a son and as I was, he was growing up, you know, he's nine now as we started doing Bible stories. And I would often think, I don't know if I would say I want him to be like David if it means all of the things David went through and experienced. There are parts of David that I want him to emulate. And there's also parts of David I want him to learn from and avoid. Mm-hmm. And you start to recognize that these biblical characters work better as companions than they do heroes, that they're mm-hmm. they're too much like us to be heroes. They're really meant to help expose our own point. need, expose yeah. who we are, and at times to encourage us to the best that we can be, but other times to warn us about those same dangers, that same darkness that lurks in all of us as well, too. And he, uh, for as heroic as David's character is, he is both hero but also warning and caution as well. Exactly. I've even heard an interpretation which I'm fascinated with of the David and Goliath story where obviously I just mentioned, if you want to preach a topical sermon, 
one shot sermon on courage, maybe preach on David and Goliath. But there is a way of looking at the David Goliath story where uh, David, we're not David. And David kind of represents Jesus. He represents God. We're the cowards that have been paralyzed for 40 the, days. The other Israelites hiding behind the rocks, exactly. unable to face the giant. That's us. But we have a champion. Um, and and I, I think um, for a while in our culture back in the 70s uh, and 80s, we, we kind of had this anti-hero thing going on in our culture, like where, and people would lament, where are the heroes? We have celebrities, but where are the heroes? And then we're kind of, now the superheroes are really, you know, in the Marvel and DC comic stuff. And I mean, we've got superheroes. We've got uh, Star Wars came, broke on the, on the scene kind of mid seventies with, 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 you know, Princess Leia and Luke and Han Solo with that hero scene at the end. And it just, the first time I ever saw that, I thought like, this is so unlike what our culture celebrates these days. We really have been in this anti-hero thing. And now, now I I think we, we idolize people. I mean, we've taken the hero thing almost to the place of idolizing people. And when you idolize people, you, 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 you tend to, I see people doing this church. You idolize your favorite favorite pastor. You you idolize the superstar worship leaders. You you just idolize them, and you 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 sort of project perfection on them. Now we're finding out some of them are pretty flawed behind the scenes, and um, so I I I think not making a hero out of these guys, looking elsewhere, looking to Jesus. That's my point. Mm-hmm. Jesus is our hero. Jesus is our hero. And a friend of mine recently wrote, he said, a lot of people are getting really knocked off kilter because we stare at people and we glance at Jesus and people are going to disappoint us. What we need to do is stare at Jesus and merely glance at people. And uh, he's the hero. He's the one who won't let us down. He's the one everything points to here. Do you have a uh, a favorite passage or a th- section from Second Samuel that you think is uh, really central to your reading of it? One of your favorite places to look? Yeah, it's it is. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to it a little bit more. It, it is um, it is for Second uh, Samuel seven. It it directs the whole rest of a the good Bible. connection to Jesus as well. A so, good yeah. connection to Jesus. Jesus is right there, and perhaps so. partly from the beginning of David's rule here. What, what the writer's trying to get us to look ahead to. That exactly. In yeah. spite of all the failures that are about yeah. to come up in David's life, yeah. there there's something here in this promise yeah. that should carry us through. Exactly. I, I mean, it's an overgeneralization, but I, I kind of feel like all paths forward in the Bible um, are one way towards Jesus from Second Samuel chapter 7. But, you know, David's really laboring over, he really wants to build the temple. And, uh, and, and so Nathan has said, you know, go, Go tell him uh, that you're not the one. But he said, tell David, uh, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Those are powerful verses. That's verses 8 and 9 of Second Samuel chapter 7. Actually, they're my two favorite verses in Second Samuel. Um, you know, there's a way in which God does that in all of our lives. So, I, you know, you're in the shepherd field, but I took you, you know, 
I look at my life. I was trying to be an engineer, and God took me. Um, some of you grew up in abusive families, but God took you. He took you, and he, he took you from tending the flock, and he appointed you over my people Israel. And, and God takes us, and he appoints us, and, and he's with us. And I've been with you wherever you've gone. This idea that we're taken and we're appointed and that every step of that, God walks with us. I know, you know, you know, David, that would have been hard to believe when he was hiding in caves from Saul, but, but God said, I've been with you the whole time. And, uh, even the Psalms he wrote during that difficult time kind of resolved like, Lord, you're my help and you're my grace. But those are my two favorite verses. Um, almost felt like God gave me those verses years ago and like this is partly your life and this is a story I write in a lot of people's lives I take you I point you and I'm with you yeah the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want there, so, there it is uh, maybe we can make this our prayer um, that we would we'd be able to escape that easy reading of just David as hero imitate David and that we would through David's life be able to hear how the Lord's speaking to us those words as well too that he is guiding us he is leading us he is faithful and then we can trust him for things that we can't fully see, just as David at his best was so capable of doing. Father, first of all, I want to thank you for your relentless love and your your mercy that can even offend people because you could forgive even people like that. And I thank you, Lord. There's nothing you can't forgive in us. There's nothing you can't change in us. We thank you. There's hope for every one of us. We thank you for redemptive mercy. We thank you for flawed people like David. We don't thank you for his sin, but in spite of it, we thank you that you know how to meet us, rescue us. You need, you even turn around our wrong choices and you can eventually turn them to good. So we thank you for this. And we thank you that you have taken us. You've taken all of us from the shepherd fields and whatever, Lord, our lives were about, whatever the context that we grew up in was about. You have taken us and you've appointed us, Lord, to do something uh, significant for you. You've appointed us to serve you and to love people and to be full of your spirit and to speak your word. My God, whether we have massive crowds or we're, 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 we're just serving in the obscurity of a small ministry, we thank you that you have appointed us and we thank you that you're with us. You're with us when we're getting chased into caves. You're with us when we don't know what happened to the call of God in our lives. And you're with us when we reach the pinnacles of influence. You are with us. You have taken us. You have appointed us and you're with us. And we thank you. Let us walk that. Let us be assured wherever we are in our journey right now, Lord, let us just yield to you like David did so many times in the Psalms. Yet I will hope in the Lord and He is the one who's going to finish what he started. Let it be, Lord, in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
You've been listening to the Jim Bradford Podcast. We would uh, really appreciate it if you would take the time to leave us some feedback on the show. You can do that by leaving a rating or by typing out a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, we hope you might consider subscribing to the show. We're looking forward to a lot of the conversations to come in the weeks ahead, and it would mean a lot to us if you'd be a part of those. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to ask Pastor Jim to hear him cover, we'd appreciate it if you'd take the time to send those in. You can do that by email by going to questions at jimbradford.org. We'd love to be able to take a look at those and get them featured on the podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.